Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and happy Halloween. This episode releases on Friday the 30th, in most places, one day before All Hallows' Eve. I hope you've got some ghoulish plans lined up for the frightful occasion. And of course, wouldn't you know it, one of those rare times Halloween lands on a Saturday, and it has to be during a global pandemic. Thanks, universe. If you're still scrambling for some chills to add to your holiday, don't forget to check out The Haunting at Home. It'll help put a fright in your Halloween night. Hauntedwalk.com slash The Haunting. And remember to use offer code Tales to Terrify to get 30% off. And if, amongst all of your other plans, you've still got some space in your Halloween calendar, well... Why not undo the holy water doused padlocks, rip off the heavy chains, and break the salt circle around that terrifying, cursed story you've had locked away for a special occasion, and submit it? You've only got hours left before the window closes forever. 
or until our next submission period, anyway. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. You're really going to miss me saying that, aren't you? One thing I promise we'll never give you the chance to miss is giving a shout-out to our generously degenerate supporters over on Patreon. And this week, we've got a special thank you to Vivian Vaudreau. If our shriveled, dead hearts could beat, you better believe they'd be hammering in appreciation right now. In addition to the three stories we'll hear tonight, if you're a supporter on Patreon, we've got something extra to get your pulse racing and heart hammering. Tomorrow, we'll be releasing the first part of one of my all-time favorite Halloween season classics, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow as read by our very own Seth Williams. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify if you don't want to miss out. While you're there, you can still get in on our exclusive fall merch pack. Check it out. But for tonight, we've got plenty of treats to get you in the mood for the season. First off, I'd like to share a little background on one of my favorite Halloween traditions, There's something just so satisfying about the feeling of the knife breaking through the skin and into the firm, juicy flesh beneath, working it back and forth around the crown until the top rips free, scooping out clumps of stringy innards, then working the knife back in, wriggling it back and forth to slash a couple of eyes and a terrifying, lopsided grin. Oh, and I like carving pumpkins, too. I've always been the guy that searches out the ugliest, most deformed pumpkin in the patch to bring home and hack up. Something with lots of lumps and warts. Something twisted and misshapen. I think it drives my son nuts. He's a fastidious kind of guy. He's always got to pick the biggest, most perfectly symmetrical pumpkin he can find and then meticulously plan out what he wants to slice into its flesh. Me, I'm more of an unleash-the-tortured-soul-within kind of carver, letting the pumpkin's inner demons dictate its physical features. But no matter how you slice it, there really is nothing that says Halloween more, for me anyway, than the flicker of a crudely carved orange monstrosity perched on the front doorstep. Jack-o'-lanterns actually have a pretty interesting history, starting, unsurprisingly, in Ireland with a man named Jack. Stingy Jack, they called him, and he worked hard to earn that nickname, although worked may be a bit strong of a word. He was sly, cunning, and shrewd always seemed to know just what to say or do to get his way. And that was especially true when it came to money. One of those guys that somehow always seems to get away with skipping out on the tab. And Jack had racked up his fair share of tabs. He was a drinker, and the more he drank, the cleverer he seemed to become. Or at least the cleverer he seemed to think he was. Jack was already several drinks deep as he stumbled his way toward the local pub that drizzly autumn evening. 
He swayed down the cobbles in the dim, rainy twilight, belting out one of his favorite drinking shanties at the top of his lungs. And preoccupied with drink and song, he nearly stumbled over a figure sprawled face down at the edge of the pathway. He uttered a string of curses, but the warm flush of booze in his cheeks was making Jack feel uncharacteristically charitable. So against his usual nature, he decided to stop and check on the figure. Bending over, he tapped the form on the shoulder. Nothing. Then he grabbed the soaked fabric of the figure's cloak and rolled them over. Whatever he'd expected, this thin, smiling face hadn't been it. And though they'd never actually met before, Jack knew instantly who it belonged to. This was Satan. As the figure sat up, then climbed to its feet, wicked smile never faltering, Jack backed away, hands raised in surrender. He looked frozen with fear. But in his mind, the gears were spinning fast. And somehow, the devil knew they were, too. He'd counted on it, as a matter of fact. He'd heard of Jack's clever, deceptive nature and loose moral fiber, and had been intrigued, maybe even a bit jealous. If Jack was indeed blessed with a silver tongue, as they said, that was something the devil needed to see firsthand. Thinking fast, as Jack usually did, he immediately began to bargain. He knew what Satan was there for, he said. Jack's time was up. But if he was going to be dragged off to eternity in hell, he'd rather not go thirsty. Join me for one last pint, he pleaded. And Satan, not one to pass up a little bit of entertainment, agreed. They sat in the pub while Jack drank pint after pint. This human proved to be entertaining. He had a sharp sense of humor, and hearing about all of the evil, heinous things he'd gotten away with in his life, the devil couldn't help but feel a grudging kinship with the man. Slamming his last empty pint on the bar top, Jack announced he was finally drunk enough to face the sweet hereafter. But first, he said, we need to pay the bartender. Would you get the tab, good sir? He gestured at Satan. Satan was a little taken aback. This man of loose morals was worrying about paying his one last tab? And with what money? I know, said Jack, anticipating the devil's response. How about you turn yourself into a coin, and I'll pay the barkeep with that. Then when we get outside, you turn right back. The bartender's purse is a pound lighter, but he's none the wiser. Satan grinned. He liked the trick. Simple, but clever. And with that, he transformed himself into a coin. And the second he did, Jack slapped the still-spinning silver disc flat on the bar, then slid it into his shirt pocket a shirt pocket that also happened to contain a crucifix. The devil was trapped, fooled by a cunning drunkard, unable to switch back. 
Jack carried Satan around just long enough for the devil's fury to subside into frustration. Then he struck a deal. He'd let Satan go, but Jack's soul was to be spared for ten years. Seeing no way around it, Satan agreed. Of course, ten years later to the minute, Satan once again found Jack, in a very similar position, stumbling down the cobbled street, a little older, a little grayer, and a little drunker. This time, Jack greeted the devil like an old friend, seemed almost genuinely happy to see him, and Satan began to remember why he'd liked the old trickster. Please, sir, said Jack, I'll gladly go with you, but my gut's rumbling something fierce. I don't want to die on an empty stomach. Do this old bird one last kindness. Would you get me something to eat? He gestured to a tree at the edge of the pathway. Just an apple from that tree right there. That'll do. Again, taken by the earnestness of the man's tone, Satan agreed. He climbed the rough bark of the tree and plucked an apple from a high branch. But as he began to climb down, he found he could go no further. He seemed stuck. And then he saw them. Carved all around the trunk of the tree were crucifixes. And there Jack leaned against the trunk, idly twirling a worn pocket knife between middle and index finger, a sly grin on his lips. Jack had him. Again. And again, Jack made a bargain with the devil. No more of this ten years crap. Jack wanted a guarantee that Satan would never take his soul, that he would be free from hell forever. And what choice did Satan have, really? He agreed, and Jack once again set him free. Of course, being free from eternal damnation doesn't mean you're free from death. And Jack's drinking habits and generally debauched lifestyle caught up with him eventually. After a life of cruelty, dishonesty, and sin, Jack was turned away from the pearly gates of heaven without a second glance. And as per their agreement, hell wouldn't take him either. With nowhere to go, Jack begged for help from Satan. Fooled twice, the devil was only happy to help his good friend Jack. He gave Jack a flaming ember from hell to mark him, and sent him back to the world as a warning to those who seek to trick the devil. Back on earth, Jack fashioned himself a lantern out of an old hollowed turnip and placed the searing ember inside. Death is dark, after all, and he needed something to light his way. And thus, Jack of the Lantern, or Jack O'Lantern, was born. On All Hallows' Eve, when the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead is thin, that's when Jack most likes to wander. And so people began to place hollowed-out vegetables with crude faces stuffed with lit candles by doors and windows to ward off the terrible hunting spirit. So my thought is that as much as that flower, superhero, or cat face might look cute carved into your turnip, potato, beet, or pumpkin, 
I personally recommend going with something that has a little more scare power. Something that at least has a shot at warding off the spirit of old Jack. Because anyone who's faced the devil twice and won no doubt has a few nasty tricks left up their sleeve. Our first story for the evening comes from Rory Say. Rory Say lives somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. In his spare time, he is compelled to write strange tales dictated to him by a morbid muse. The following is one such tale. Children of the Night, join me for Rory Say's Winter, a Tales to Terrify original. Though it was a while until winter, we woke to snow. Colin was the first to see it. I was still half dreaming when he shouted from the kitchen that it was snowing outside, and so it was easy to tell myself that his words weren't real. But when he ran back into our bedroom, shouting over and over again what he'd shouted from the kitchen, I got up on my knees and peeled apart the blinds of the window beside me. And then I saw that it was true. Snow was falling from a deep gray sky that seemed to hang just over the roofs of the houses around us. It must have started some time ago, because already a sooty layer covered everything I could see out the window. I had to look at it for a while before I could believe it. When I turned around, I saw Dad inside the doorway. His hair was wild, and his eyes were red and wide, and they looked past me, over me, as though he could still see out the window, even though I'd taken my fingers from the blinds. I asked him what was wrong, and he pretended not to hear me just kept staring over my shoulder with a look on his face I didn't like. Then he told Colin to stop shouting and told both of us to keep it down because Mom wasn't feeling well. I asked him again what was wrong, this time referring to Mom, but he had already left the room and closed the door behind him. Colin crawled up on my bed and raised the blinds. We both looked for another while. The snow that was everywhere looked old and dirty, like the kind that ends up piled on the side of a road, even though it was the first I'd seen in a few years. I slid the window open a crack and stuck my arm outside. The air was warm on my bare skin, warmer even than in our bedroom. I waited until a snowflake fell into my hand, and then I brought my arm back in. Colin leaned in close, and we both studied the snowflake. It was about the size of a moth, and it looked like a withered shred of burnt paper. Colin asked if it was cold, 
and I told him no. Then I closed my hand into a fist, and when I opened it, the snowflake had disappeared into the teeniest bits of nothing. We both looked at each other. I could see questions in Colin's face, but he didn't ask me anything because I think he saw the same questions in my face as well. We put our backs to the window and sat for a moment on the side of my bed. Then Colin asked if I wanted to play outside, but there was no excitement in his voice and he didn't ask again when I made no reply. We spent the morning reading in our room. There wasn't much else to do. Mom and Dad hadn't let us watch any TV for the past while. They said all the kids' shows were taking a break, and even they only watched it after we'd gone to bed. Lately, Mom had been reading us one of the rolled doll books we kept on a shelf in the hallway, but since she was sick, I had to take over. We sat huddled underneath the window because the light wasn't working. I was never able to understand anything I read aloud. It was like I was sounding out words in a language that made no sense. This meant that I needed to read every page back to myself once I'd read it out to Colin, which ended up taking a very long time. At some point, we heard a noise from the living room and went out to find Dad carrying the TV away from its stand in the corner. He still hadn't had a shower and his hair was still all over the place and he wasn't wearing a shirt. He paused when he saw us and said that the TV wasn't working. I asked him for the third time that morning what was wrong and for the third time he gave me the same answer of silence before disappearing back into his bedroom. An hour later, we had finished the BFG and taken the witches off the shelf, but I'd barely begun to read from it when we heard the sound of somebody crying. Colin's eyes found mine, and a second later, we were banging on Mom and Dad's bedroom door, shouting questions in frightened voices. The door opened, and Dad was there. His face was awful. It hardly looked like Dad's face at all. Behind him, I could see Mom in bed, her head propped up by pillows, her face wet with tears. It looked awful, too. Dad told us that everything was all right. Mom just needed some rest. I asked him if she was sick because of the snow, and he only looked at me like he didn't understand what I'd said, his eyes blank and his mouth a bit open. Then Mom said from behind him that she'd be okay. She'd be out to see us in a while. Her voice didn't sound like she was okay. We looked at her until Dad closed the door on us, and then we looked at each other and went back into our room. None of the clocks worked either. We had Colin's watch to go by, but it didn't seem to make much difference what time it was. Outside was like the changeless scene in a snow globe, only one that was colorless, 
And though we kept looking out our bedroom window every few minutes, we'd stopped discussing what was there. When we got hungry, we went and told Dad, and he came in a while later with a tray of crackers and cheese and nuts and two glasses of milk that wasn't cold. He watched us as we ate, and then he sat down on Colin's bed and ran his hands over his face and began telling us about the snow. He said, There was a big storm somewhere far away that was so powerful that it collected up all the little bits of dust and dirt and turned them into papery flakes. And even though this storm was far away, he explained slowly, all those little things it picked up had traveled over to us in the clouds. Colin asked if the storm would come to us, and Dad took a while to answer and finally said, No, we didn't need to worry. Up on my knees and looking out the window, I asked if the snow was bad to touch, and Dad said, No, not really. It would only make us dirty, and so we shouldn't go out playing in it. Then I asked if this was why school had closed down, and he said no, school was closed because the teachers were on a strike, which meant they wanted more money. The room was quiet for a while. There were more questions I wanted to ask about the snow, but didn't. The fear I felt as I looked at that gray portion of the world out my bedroom window was something I couldn't put my finger on. I hated to look at it, but when I wasn't looking, I wanted to. Later, Mom came out and we lit candles that she placed around the living room. Her face looked sore from crying, but she tried to smile and told us when we asked that she didn't want to talk about it. She'd tell us later. Dad sat in a chair by the big front window, rubbing his fingers into his whiskers and turning now and then to peer behind the curtains. We ate a meal together of bread with peanut butter and sliced bananas and more cheese and crackers. Mom kept reaching out to squeeze our hands and tell us that she loved us and was proud of us and that she was so happy we were all together. For some reason, hearing her say these things frightened me in a strange way like the way I felt when I looked out the window at the snow. Colin said he loved her back as he played with his food, and Dad was quiet at the table and didn't eat anything. Afterwards, Mom read to us by candlelight on the couch in the living room, picking up from where Colin and I had left off in the witches. I found it hard to concentrate on the story. Mom's voice sounded shaky and dry not like her usual reading voice, and she kept needing to clear her throat and get up to refill her glass of water. I was also distracted every time Dad would turn in his chair to look out the curtains behind him, which Mom insisted be kept drawn. Colin began to yawn and stretch his arms after a while, and then he was asleep with his head in Mom's lap. Dad got up to take him to our room, but Mom said, no, leave him, he's fine where he is. Dad hesitated, then sat back down. None of us spoke or looked at each other for what felt like a long time. 
we all looked at Colin, his small head, his bent legs. Then Mom reached over and stroked my hair and said she loved me and told me I was very brave. I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what she meant. All I could think about was the snow outside, just behind the curtains. But I didn't say anything about that either. We sat there in the living room, long into the night, the candles glowing and diminishing around us, dripping white wax on the coasters we'd placed under them. Colin shifted in his sleep and made small, cat-like sounds. Watching him made me tired, and finally I sank down to put my own head above his in Mom's lap. The next time I woke, it was only for a few seconds. That was Rory Say's Winter, as read by Drew Mallory. Drew Mallory is a research psychologist and interventionist who works on issues that affect vulnerable populations. When not narrating or voice acting, he authors his own dark fiction. Drew recently relocated to Thailand, where he continues to work on sustainability issues and, like every good psychologist, is still accompanied by his pet rats. Thank you, Drew. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Our second story tonight comes to us from Michael Bondes. Michael Bondes grew up in Dallas, Texas, attended the University of Colorado at Denver, and now lives on the West Coast. When he's not writing, you will usually find him playing guitar. Visit him at michaelbondes.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Michael Bondes' Night Roses, a Tales to Terrify original.
The knock on the door, three light raps, made Lily Dartle cringe. Something about the gentleness of it made her cold. She didn't know anything about necromancers beyond the obvious. She had no idea what to expect. Her husband, Rannell, cleared his throat and reached for the doorknob. He was a bull of a man, thick-browed and thick-boned. It was strange to see him nervous. If Lily weren't so frightened, it might have brought her a bit of satisfaction. The door swung open and Winkenwerder strode into the cottage. Clearly over sixty, but without the stoop those years sometimes bring, he was six feet tall, with sharp shoulders and a face that looked chiseled from an earthen flower pot. Gray at the temples, his smoky brown hair was tossed back, as if blown by an invisible wind. A full-length cape draped his finely tailored tunic and pants, all of it purple and black, with the lustrous sheen of velvet. His eyes, wide and smoldering, gave the cottage's poultry living room a once-over, then settled on Lily. His expression brightened. He smiled, a flash of healthy white teeth. Lily's heart jumped. She stumbled back a step, nearly tipping on a rickety end table before catching herself. Winkenwerder would have been imposing even without the necromancer label, but so handsome. With a jolt, she realized she hadn't had a thought like that about someone in a long time. Suspicion, however, was quick to replace it. You must be Lily, Winkenwerder said. His voice was light and pleasant, the voice, Lily thought of a scholar. He'd pronounced the T in must clearly. A man who was exact. Garrett, my driver, gushed all week about your flowers. I am eager to see them. However, as he studied her, his brow furrowed, noticing something. My black eye, Lily realized. She glanced down, cheeks burning. The sight of her unfashionable smock made her feel even worse. Had it really been only a year since she'd married Rannell? Such a mistake. It felt like ten. Of course, if she was honest with herself, she'd known marrying a man so soon after his first wife had run off and left him was a mistake. But at forty-two and alone, she'd been caught up in the romance of a second chance and put her doubts about his irascible nature aside. Their courtship indeed had been nothing short of a whirlwind. Long into the night they'd talked, for many nights, over many cups of cheap wine, each expressing a desire to try again after a failed first marriage. Rannell had spoken, passionately, of the farm he hoped to build, and of the life he might make for them both. She, in turn, had told him of her daughter, the one she'd raised on her own by growing flowers and then selling them on the street corners, after her husband of twenty years had been lured away by a woman with a talent for singing and the harp. 
Lily had sworn to herself on her wedding night to Rannell that she would give it everything she had to make it work with him. They had both suffered the same heartache, hadn't they? They had that in common, that bond. And Rannell had been trying to raise money for a farm. She'd seen that effort immediately, or at least the illusion of it. She wasn't blind to what his efforts at building a farm had led him to. His gambling debts at Ion's Tavern had been piling up for a long time, but trying to talk to him about anything at this point, let alone that, usually earned her a tongue lashing, if not a bruise. She tried to convince herself not to take it personally when he lashed out at her, hoping he might get past it. She'd even, for a while, become convinced it was her fault. How else, she reasoned, could a man who'd seemed so kind, someone she'd genuinely fallen for, have devolved into the creature before her now? An uncomfortable moment lingered as Winkenwerder continued to gaze at her. Outside, she could hear the city of Dagenport preparing for nightfall. Last runs to the water trough, doors and windows bolting and locking, and as always, the weird utter droning of a protection enchantment as Mrs. Cinders, the old woman across the street, tried to make her cottage safe. But who really was safe here? Dagenport, a central hub for trade in this part of the world, was a thriving den of anonymity and clandestine deals. There were even whispers of a slave trade in operation at the Dagenport docks, running largely unchecked. Lily had a recurring nightmare of waking up on one of those ships, smelling of fish and salt, on her way to some godforsaken island, chains rattling at her ankles and wrists and throat. Or perhaps, as she'd thought more than once over the past year, she'd already climbed aboard willingly. In her mind's eye, looking out from the rails across an endless expanse of dark waves, she could no longer see land. The Rannell was a long way from shore. With a shudder, Lily thought back to the night before, to the feel of Rannell's sweaty hand clamping the back of her neck as she'd shoved her freshly blackened eye into the sheets and forced her to perform her duty. Nothing about nights like that, she knew, was her fault. Nothing. She'd fought him on a few of those nights, even run off once. But he'd found her at Mrs. Cinder's cottage and dragged her back, apologizing for his conduct and making sweet promises if she behaved. And how far, really, would she have gotten with no money anyway? Ultimately, making herself small had become her first line of defense. Soon, she promised herself for the umpteenth time. I'll get away from him. I'll... Rannell lumbered up to Winkenwerder, his heavy bootsteps unsteady with drink. 
An exaggerated smile stretched his stubbled face. It was the same smile, Lily noted, that he'd used to sweep her off her feet the year before. A bit of the old charm. I talked to your man about the deal. Name's Rannell. He offered his hand. Winkenwerder didn't take it. He asked softly, Where is Lily's flower garden? Out back. Show me. Why? Rannell's voice had a mistrustful edge now. I'll trade you the flowers right here. I must ensure the quality of what I buy. Rannell hesitated, then nudged Lily out of the way to make room for the tall stranger as he marched toward the rough-cut back door. Come on, then. Winkenwerder's eyes flicked again to Lily's. She felt something move inside her, deep, beneath the apprehension, though she couldn't quite hold the necromancer's gaze. She stepped behind a burlap-covered sitting bench, making herself as small as she could. Join us, please, Winkenwerder said gently as he strode past. Lily swallowed hard and followed. Outside, in the gloaming, the three stood before Lily's pride and joy, her flower garden, her sanctuary, her solace. This little backyard plot had become the only place she felt at home. It spread out in tidy rows of lovingly hand-tilled soil, arranged by color and type. The colors, even in the near dark, seemed to glow of their own accord, as vibrant as a peacock's tail. Wood slats worn with weather, and Lily's constant watering, boxed the pot in. An earthy, floral fragrance perfumed the air, both complex and delightful. Months ago, after suggesting the idea of a garden to Rannell, his reaction had surprised her. Who gives a squirrel's ass about a mound of dirt? Go ahead. This old place could use it. Don't dig deep, though. You ain't gonna like my mood if you hoe up my foundation. She promised him she wouldn't, and then she'd gotten busy. Very busy. Lily snuck a peek at Winkenwerder, watching his eyes dance over the chrysanthemums and magnolias and the delicate orchids she'd coaxed to grow alongside the hardier plants. He looked genuinely impressed. His gaze settled on the back row near the fence that hid everything from the neighbors. The night roses. The reason for his visit. Lily couldn't begin to guess his nefarious purpose for them. Rannell, desperate for gambling payoff money, had taken a small bouquet of her night roses, along with a few of her other floral creations, to the Dagenport market. He'd sold them quickly, and word had spread. She'd swelled with pride at the news. Beautiful, Wigginwerder said, 
stepping out onto the grass for a better view. Truly. Thank you, Lily said before she could stop herself, then clamped her hand over her mouth, eyes darting to Rannell. Her husband glared back at her hard, his furious gaze making her cold all over. He leaned in close so the necromancer couldn't hear and grabbed her arm, squeezing the tender space around her bicep. He stank of ale. His cold gray eyes looked red-rimmed and tinged with madness. I told you to keep your mouth shut. Do that again, and you'll pay for it. It wasn't an idle threat. Lily had no illusions about that. Rannell rarely made good on his promises, but he never failed to deliver on his threats. She promised herself again, I'll get away from him, as always. But to where? Her daughter was long since grown and gone. She had no family anywhere close enough to reach without a significant investment. She'd considered, many times, trying to covertly sell her flowers to raise some escape money. But Rannell was spiteful as a badger and would never let her keep it if he found out. And, well, on that day, the money would be the least of her problems. She nodded quickly, and Rannell released her. Winkenwerder knelt beside the ink-black roses. He reached out tentatively, almost reverently, and brushed his knuckles along the petals of a tall black flower. Velvety pollen, Lily knew, had just drifted onto the back of his hand. He pinched a bit of it between his thumb and index finger, rubbing gently. The smile that curled the corner of his mouth made Lily's stomach flutter. How is it, Winkenwerder said, that you have grown these here when no one else in this region has managed it? It was a good question. One Lily wasn't totally sure she could answer. But she had some ideas, and she wanted to answer, wanted to talk, wanted to tell him all about her flowers. But her eyes darted to Rannell, then down at her hands, a shameful heat burning her cheeks as she kept quiet. A feeling, however, was growing in her. A sense she was missing something here. Her thumb was greener than most, yes, but had she really done anything special beyond love and care? Anything to warrant this necromancer's interest? Don't matter how, Randall told the stranger. What matters is I got him. You? This place is mine. Everything in it. Them flowers, too. But this is Lily's work? Ain't no flowers without no dirt, Rannell quipped with a snorting laugh, clearly expecting Winkenwerder to join in. The necromancer didn't laugh. Instead, he stood and sauntered back, brushing the pollen from his hands. The precise movement of his fingers was hypnotic. Rannell shifted uncomfortably, 
doing his best to keep a smile. Look, you want to do this deal or not? He scratched his chest through a hole in his tunic, wobbling slightly as Winkenwerder approached. Lily mended her own clothes as best she could, but she'd given up on Rannells long ago. Any mistake she made was met with a backhand, and she'd never been good with needle and thread. It was best, she found, to leave things be. As he neared, Winkenwerder's eyes flicked to Lily's. There was a message there, one she couldn't decipher. And again, she felt a stir. It frightened her, yet an idea whizzed through her mind that excited her even more. Was there an opportunity here? Well, Rannell said. How many will you sell? Wickenwerder asked. And what is your price? A conniving gleam lit Rannell's red-rimmed eyes. Clearly the quality of Wickenwerder's clothing hadn't been lost on him. Well, you're not the only one interested. A noose, I am told, Wickenwerder interjected, has already been fashioned for your neck at Ion's Tavern. Your gambling debts are not a secret. Rannell's face reddened. He smiled again, a constrained, dangerous thing. Through half-gritted teeth, he said, Five gold. That's the price. Five gold, and you can have the whole lot. Wickenwerder paused, considering. Five gold? was a near fortune for most people in Dagenport. Lily couldn't guess what that number would mean to a powerful necromancer, but a bucket of common roses went for two copper in the market. That is your best price. Can't budge. Wickenwerder looked thoughtful for a moment. Then, incredibly, he turned to Lily. That is your best offer? Lily's stomach clenched. She suddenly couldn't breathe. Why was the necromancer looking at her? She had no say. If she answered, Rannell would pay it out in bruises. Yet, her mind was still chewing on the idea of an opportunity, and she almost, almost felt ready to. No, no, don't be stupid. She lowered her eyes, catching Winkenwerder's disappointed expression as she did so. Rannell stepped between them, shoving Lily aside hard enough to leave a welt on her shoulder. Hey, Rannell said. She ain't the one to talk to. I'm the one. He gathered himself. Now, I'll take four gold and five silver, but that's it. Can't go no lower. Winkenwerder's eyes glinted. You don't know anything about these night roses, do you? I know they're valuable, and I grow them prettier than anybody. Winkenwerder grinned, the visage of a man who knows secrets. Indeed, Lily did 
a masterful job. Lily rubbed her aching shoulder, flushing at the compliment, her mind furiously sorting through the cryptic messages she'd seen in the necromancer's eyes. No, no, this isn't the time, this isn't the place. Winkenwerder went on. Two things, however, are required for a successful grow. One of these is a rare combination of naturally formed soils in the correct proportion. Apparently, you have that proper mix here, as my properties do not. Lily, did you bring in any outside soil? Randall nudged her with his elbow. Answer him. It took a moment for Lily to find her voice. I... Last year, I traded some old pottery for enchanted compost. Or, well, the herbalist told me it was enchanted. I tilled that in, hoping it would encourage the colors. Indeed, it did. You have admirable instincts. Lily flushed again. The other item required, Winkenwerder said, is a corpse. Lily froze, stunned. The backyard spun for a moment like a carnival ride at the Dagonport Fair. He didn't mean that. Rannell had gone rigid beside her, making a strange grinding sound in his throat. Casually, as if discussing the weather, Winkenwerder went on. The body must be buried far enough down to avoid a quick rot, yet close enough to the surface to nourish the flowers. Like the soil blend. A tricky combination. Enough of this horseshit! Rannell bellowed, clearly distraught now. There ain't nothing like that here. We gonna do this deal or not? Three gold, that's it. Give me three gold and you take the flowers and you go on about your business. Winkenwerder's eyes locked to Lily's. And that is your last, best offer. Lily's stomach clenched again, her heartbeat thumping in her ears. With each thump came the word... Opportunity. 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 She realized she'd been holding her breath and had to bear down not to gasp. Am I truly considering this? Yet standing there, smelling the stink of ale from Rannell, feeling the tender space under her bicep where he'd squeezed her, and the aching throb on her shoulder where he'd just shoved her, Something inside her shifted and rose. Something that, long ago, before she'd submitted to Rannell, had been strong, so strong she'd managed to raise her daughter on her own. Where had that strength gone? And before she even realized she was going to speak, she heard herself answer in a clear voice, No. I'll make you a better one. Rannell whirled on her, his face beat red, already raising a backhand. 
I told you, keep your mouth shut. Poof. A fine mist, looking almost like a specter, brushed Randall's face. Randall coughed and stumbled, blinking, his arms waving and then immediately going slack. Winkenwerder had a small copper wand in his hand now, pulled from his cape's folds, the source of the ghostly mist. Rannell just stood there, stunned, on the verge of collapse. My arms, legs, you son of a bitch. Then he fell silent. Winkenwerder turned to Lily. He placed his hand gently on her forearm. It was warm. Reassuring. Nothing like she was used to. It is all right, Lily. Your husband will be incapacitated until we decide otherwise. Now, you were saying... She looked up at him, both panicked and comforted by his touch, a jumble of crazy feelings rushing through her all at once. I... I... And then it all poured out of her. She told him everything, right there in front of Rannell, not caring if her husband could hear her, hoping he could hear her, about the abuse about how her garden had become the only place she found joy. Finally, doing her best not to surrender to her tears, she offered, I will give you many night roses. I will save them for you as they grow. In return, I want only... Her wet eyes flicked to the still-stunned Rannell, then back to the necromancer. Freedom. Peace. To do the work. Done, Wiganwerder said, his eyes twinkling. Rannell was coming around. He began struggling against the wand's effects, moaning and clenching his fists, but he was unable to move forward. Quickly now, Lily, Wiganwerder said. Harvest the night roses. Lily grabbed her shears from a fence hook and hurried to the garden's back row, feeling doubt, even apprehension, about what she'd just set in motion. Too late to back out now. Careful to avoid the thorns, she clipped the night roses, one by one, from each bush. Their color, even in the scant light, more a deep velvety purple than a true black, astonished her, despite having gazed at them hundreds of times. They looked nothing like the cheap dyed knockoffs found at the market. She returned to Winkenwerder's side, gathering the flowers into a bouquet, mindful of the thorns. With a graceful flourish, the necromancer pulled another wand, this one ebony, from the folds of his cape. Step behind me, he told her. Lily did so, keen to be farther away from Rannell. Her husband's effort to break free had become so intense, 
he was practically foaming at the mouth. One gold, he managed to croak, spittle flying. I'll take one. Ignoring him, Winkenwerder turned and stood before the garden. He began a slow, mumbling, arm-waving incantation with the wand, as if directing an ensemble to unheard music. The soil trembled. Lily staggered back, shocked, as something emerged from the dirt. Pale and wiggling. Worms? No, not worms. What? She whispered. What is? Another who needs peace, Wiegenwerder intoned as he continued his methodical wand-waving. Lily's blood ran cold. Fingers. They struggled upward, bent and grasping, flicking aside chrysanthemums and magnolias and naked rose bushes. The fingers of a woman. The nails were long, cracked, and looked to have been painted once. The hand broke free, then the wrist and forearm, surging now as a second hand joined the effort. Ranel began whimpering like a terrified child. You can take him free. Just don't let her get me. Please, don't let her get me. The rest of the rising happened quickly. Soil exploded up and bounded away like a lava flow as the woman, what remained of her, emerged from the ground. She wore the remnants of a red dress, the fabric eaten away and hanging in tattered strips. Plant roots entwined her, reinforcing her sinews and tying her bones together as she shambled toward Rannell on legs as shaky as a toddler's. She was wrecking the garden. Dirt and stems and decaying flesh dropped away from her in big and small chunks as she came. Her hair, had it been blonde, covered most of her face, stuck in clumps of crusted gore. One eye was missing. The other was a bloated, milky grape. I didn't, Rannell sobbed, dropping to his knees. I, I didn't. Lily's stomach cartwheeled. He did. It was Hilda, his former wife. The one who, according to his story, had run off and left him. Lily clenched her hand over her mouth, queasy and weak-kneed. Weekenwerder uttered something to Hilda that Lily didn't catch. The dead woman's head cocked, sinews and plant roots cracking, as if she understood. Hilda increased her pace, lumbering toward Rannell, rotten fingers grasping. Keep her away! Rannell cried. I'm begging you. No, no, no! And Hilda was on him. Her jaw cracked open and clamped his neck. Rannell screamed, his voice shrill, and then lost in a spray of blood.
Lily hid behind the night rose bouquet, nauseated, hardly daring to peek, yet unable to completely look away as Hilda gouged Randall's left eye, digging her rotten thumbs into the socket, spidering her dirt-caked fingers around his skull. Hilda pressed her lips to the eye hole and slurped the gooey mess down like porridge. Randall kicked and bucked, slapping his hands against the grass. He screamed again in a phlegmy gurgle, spasmed twice, and then stilled. Weekenwerder stepped forward, directing his wand and voice at the still-feeding Hilda. You will stand. Hilda immediately released Rannell and stood. She teetered, her chin dripping with Rannell's blood, barely maintaining her balance. You will walk back, Weekenwerder commanded her, and stand by the fence. Hilda did so. Lily? Lily jumped, her face still hidden behind the night roses. She was woozy, and she'd inadvertently scratched her cheek with a thorny stem. The sound of the necromancer's voice, though, soothed her. Do not worry. I will take this woman with me. I will free her of this bond and return her to her family for a proper burial. Lily nodded, shaken but relieved. And him? Do we still have our deal? She handed him the bouquet. We do. Winkenwerder accepted the flowers, taking a moment to gaze lovingly at them, even waving them under his nose to catch a whiff of their fragrance. He turned to Randall's corpse and performed another mumbling, arm-waving incantation with the ebony wand. Rannell, as if guided by a puppeteer, lurched to his feet and stood, wobbly, drenched with his own blood, a scarecrow from a nightmare. The necromancer pressed the ebony wand into Lily's hand, explaining that she would need it. He suggested she keep it until they saw each other again, and after a brief tutorial on the wand, and how to direct the newly dead Rannell, he pulled a calling card from his pants pocket and handed it to her. A price on your next batch of flowers, I think, will be easy for us to come to. My office is in the Southwest District, Will you call on me? Lily nodded, steadier now, and liking the feel of the wand's smooth surface on her palm. She was fascinated by the way it buzzed her fingers when she used it. Shouldn't she be frightened of it? Yet somehow, she wasn't. She looked to Rannell. How long will he... last... Twelve hours. I know a few tricks if you would like more time with him. She shook her head. Winkenwerder turned to go, but then stopped and looked back at her, still cradling the bouquet of night roses. You interest me, Lily. I feel... 
a potential between us. I really do hope to see you again soon. You will. The necromancer smiled, showing his white teeth in the dying light. With the flourish of his cape, he strode back through the cottage and out to his waiting carriage, with the stumbling, lurching Hilda in tow. By midnight, Lily's new expanded garden was tilled and ready for seeding. The moon painted the backyard with a creamy glow as she sat straight-backed in a wicker chair under the cottage awning, turning Winkenwerder's wand in her hand, watching the newly dead Rannell work. He'd been at it for six hours straight, moaning and groaning and shoveling, with only his right eye to see with, not to mention all the other damage Hilda had done to him, hauling away the trampled flowers, collecting the perennials Lily thought looked salvageable, and retilling the soil, had given him trouble. However, directed by Lily's simple commands, as Winkenwerder had instructed her, he'd eventually gotten the hang of it. As Lily waited for him to finish, half a dozen emotions she couldn't quite put a name to swirled through her. Did I do the right thing? She thought of how horrible it must have been for Hilda, having zero doubt that Rannell had been treating her the same way he'd treated Lily, right up until he'd put her in the ground. Would I have been next? She had no doubt about that, either. She did have doubts about her future, but her path forward was clear. The law here, in most cases, turned a blind eye to anything beyond the most pressing of cases. She could deal with that. And Mrs. Cinders had spoken of a relative on the Dagenport Council who might be able to help, too. And of course, she thought with a tingle, there was Winkenwerder. An hour later, finally, Rannell's job was done. He stood waiting in the garden center, shovel in hand, teetering at the edge of the hole his former wife had occupied. Lily rose from the chair. Despite the late hour, she felt energized. She lifted her chin and strode to the garden's edge with the ebony wand steady in her hand, the feel of it giving her confidence. More, though, was the confidence she felt in herself now, in her abilities, in her talent for growing flowers and the beauty they might bring into the world. She would never, ever get into this situation again. You will put the shovel down, Lily instructed dead Rannell, feeling a pleasant buzz from the wand. The shovel thumped to the dirt. You will climb into the hole. Without hesitation, Rannell slunk down and disappeared into the earth. As Lily stood there, listening to her dead husband's growly mumbling and the dampened echoes it made. She took a moment to recount all the nights she'd spent crying herself to sleep over the past year, 
rubbing a fresh welt or bruise. How fitting, she thought, that this man, who had never supported her in life, would now do so in death as his body nourished her flowers. She wiped a cool tear from her cheek, then said, You will cover yourself with dirt. And Randall did just that, scooping clumps of dirt from the hole's edges and pulling it in on himself. Once he could do nothing but reach and grasp at the air, Lily waved the wand with the command, You will be still. Then she took up the shovel and ended it. That was Michael Bondy's Night Roses, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family, when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband, and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Lastly, this evening, we've prepared an extra little bonus tale for you, a classic from H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was an American author known for blending elements of fantasy, horror, and science fiction. He's perhaps best known for popularizing cosmic horror, the notion that some concepts entities, or experiences are barely comprehensible to human minds, and those who delve into such risk their sanity. Lovecraft has become a cult figure in the horror genre, and is noted as creator of the Cthulhu Mythos, a series of loosely interconnected fictions featuring a pantheon of non-human creatures, as well as the famed Necronomicon, a grimoire of magical rites and forbidden lore. His work typically has a tone of cosmic pessimism, regarding mankind as insignificant and powerless in the universe. Lovecraft's readership was limited during his life, and his works, particularly early in his career, have been criticized as occasionally ponderous and for their uneven quality. Nevertheless, Lovecraft's reputation has grown tremendously over the decades, and he is now commonly regarded as one of the most important horror writers of the 20th century, exerting an influence that is widespread, though often indirect. Sit back, relax, and listen with me, children of the night, to H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider, first published in Weird Tales, April 1926.
unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower, which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, Yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle and I merely regarded myself by instinct 
as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth, because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat, and under the dark mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I frantically ran back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats, whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress. For climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure, that I might peer out and above, and try to judge the height I had once attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that conclave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended.
since the slab was the trap door of an aperture, leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower. No doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, hoped, when necessary, to pry it up again. Believing I was now at prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble, bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment, so many aeons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway, where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiselings. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known, for shining tranquility through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door. But the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on the level through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, 
and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was or what I was or what my surroundings might be. Though, as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I'd reached what seemed to be my goal. A venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly-dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never, seemingly, heard human speech before, and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brightly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Light was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon 
and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their ears with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment, alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause. I beheld, in full, frightful vividness, the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity, which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and disillusion, the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel and unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second 
of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident. My fingers touched the rotting, outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephren and the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety, save the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new wilderness and freedom I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage, for although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. That was H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider, as read by yours truly. Check out TalesToTerrify.com for more about me, or drop me a line on the Tales to Terrify Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pull back the veil on more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.